This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, in for Terry Gross. Today, we're remembering Seymour Stein, who died last Sunday at age 80. He was the co-founder of Sire Records, which he ran from 1966 until he stepped down in 2018. We're going to listen to two of our interviews with Stein. Over his long career, he signed a wide range of pioneering artists, from the Ramones and Madonna to Talking Heads, The Pretenders, K.D. Lang, and Ice-T. Here's a sampling. At my door, fresh Adidas week across the bathroom floor. Out my back window, I took my escape. Didn't even get a chance to grab my old school tape. Mad with no music, happy cause free. And the streets to a player is the place to be. He's got nine brothers and sisters. They're brought up on their knees. It's hard to run when a coat hanger beats you on the thighs. Pedro dreams of being older and killing the old man. But that's a slim chance. He's going to the boulevard. On the dirty boulevard, he's going out to the dirty boulevard. Seymour Stein learned the record business at King Records. He was only 14 when he met Sid Nathan, that label's founder. At the time, the young teenager was working at Billboard magazine. Billboard used to host listening sessions where record company owners would play their new recordings and try to persuade Billboard to give them a good review. At one of those sessions, Stein met Sid Nathan. Seymour Stein recalled their first meeting in a conversation with Terry Gross in 2009. I remember that session, you know, like it was yesterday. And uh, it was over 50 years ago. Sid was there and an, another record man was there as well. Um, what, I, what I remember very clearly was um, there were a large amount of records to listen to. And uh, the last two or three were on the Jubilee label. And uh, one of the reporters said, uh, oh, uh, I hear Jubilee Records uh, is going out of business. Why should we even bother with these records? He said, I'm sure, you know, Sid is getting a little bored here. And uh, Sid said, in the way he spoke, he said, look, what if I wasn't here? Would you talk that way about me? 
listen to these records. And um, so the person said, boy, Jerry Blaine, who is the owner of Jubilee Records, he said, he must be a good friend of yours. And he said, oh, no, I'm suing the son of a bitch. <laughs> and... Um, he said, but he said, but what what's right is right, you know. And uh, uh, one of the records actually became a hit. I can't remember. It might have been White Silver Sands by Don Rondo or someone something like that. Um, so, 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 how did you get to work for Sid Nathan? Um, he invited me out to spend the summer with him. I was still in high school. Uh, I was fifteen, and um, I said, yeah. Wow. And um, my parents were a, a bit, you know, <laughs> my, my father was an Orthodox Jew and, um, you know, I just didn't un- understand all of this. Um, and I'd brought them up to Billboard. And an appointment was made, which I didn't talk to my parents for a couple of weeks. I was so embarrassed that they would, you know, question something that was so wonderful. And um, just as he walked into Sid's office, he put out uh, his my father's cheap cigar, and Sidney immediately reached into his pocket and gave him a Havana, which my father was not used to. And um, he had my father in his pocket. And he said, well, he said, Seymour here, he's got shellac in his veins. And um, what a compliment. It It meant that, you know, I was a record man, you know, because shellac was the main ingredient in old 78s. And uh, then he explained that to my father. He said, if you don't let him do what he wants to do, he's going to wind up doing nothing. And you'll have to buy him a, a newspaper route because that's all he'll be good for. And uh, this was April. And uh, my parents rushed home. And when I got home, Everything was packed. I wasn't supposed to leave till the end of June when high school was, was was up. So how old were you when you went to work with Sid Nathan at King Records full, full time? Full time. Um, it was 1961, 62. So I would have been 19 or just turning 20. Mm-hmm. Now, one, one of the things that Sid Nathan did for you after you started working with him at King Records was tell you to change your name. Your real last name was? Oh, I was born with the name Steinbeagle, Seymour Steinbeagle. And what was wrong with that in Sid Nathan's eyes? It, it was too long. And uh, he kept asking me to change it, and uh, I, I, I didn't want to hurt my father's feelings. My father was the eldest son, and uh, his both his brothers had changed their name, had shortened it, but he felt... Um, out of respect to his father, he should keep it. So, but you did change it. Oh well, um, yes. Uh, not everybody had phones at King Records. People shared phones as much as three or four people could share a phone at one time. But there was a paging system, and the, the switchboard operator had one microphone, and Sid had the other one on his desk, and uh, I was being paged. I had an incoming call. Seymour Steinbeagle, pick up the closest phone. Seymour Steinbeagle, there's a call. And she was repeating it over and over again. And all of a sudden, Sid's voice came on. And he said, oh, no, it's Stein or Biggle 
or back to New York. <laughs> and I was so, I almost started to cry. I was so embarrassed. Uh, and I changed my name and uh, uh, it, it I'm, I'm very glad that I did. So you got started at Billboard magazine. Do you ever yes. miss the importance of the charts, the days when, like, top 40 really meant something? I miss it a lot. What do you miss about it? I miss all the the excitement. I mean, that's how I heard about Billboard. Um, there was uh, this disc jockey long before rock and roll, Martin Block, um, WNEW in New York. Yeah, yes. Make believe ballroom. Ex- exactly. <laughs> it's make believe ballroom time and free to everyone. Well, I would I would come back from, on Saturday mornings from uh, the synagogue and uh, have the the my radio sort of under the pillow so my father couldn't hear it when he came home, listening to Martin Block play the top 25 off of the Billboard chart. And later he started playing, in addition, the top five R&B and the top five country and western. And that's how I got introduced to Johnny Cash and Ray Price and Hank Williams on the one hand and and to some of the R&B records to my idol, uh, Fats Domino, uh, as well. Um, radio was very important in the charts and they played the Billboard charts that was what Martin Block played off of and that's how I knew to go up to Billboard Seymour Stein, a pleasure to talk with you thank you so much you're very welcome Seymour Stein, speaking to Terry Gross in 2009 he died last Sunday at age 80 Terry Gross spoke with Stein again in 2018 he had just published his autobiography called Siren Song my life in music. Seymour Stein, welcome back to Fresh Air. In your book, you write, I'm a hitman, a record business entrepreneur. What I'm not is a producer like Phil Spector or Quincy Jones. I can't play any instrument. I can't operate a studio. My exact job description is A&R, artist and repertoire, the old show business term for talent hunting. How do you think not being a musician has been both a shortcoming and an advantage for you? Well, I think that for me it's been somewhat of an advantage because what I listen to first and foremost are the songs. And um, I always feel that an artist as a performer can always get better and usually does. The same thing with a musician. They usually get stronger, you know, as it goes along. But the songs have to be great from the very beginning, and that's what I've always looked for in all the different categories and fields of music that I've signed artists in. It's always been the songs. You started in the record business at age 15 when Sid Nathan, the founder of King Records, convinced your father to allow you to spend summers in Cincinnati at King's headquarters. Well, no, no, that's not exactly correct. I started really going up to Billboard when I was 15 years old just to copy down the charts uh, because I had kept the charts religiously from around when I was about nine years old. I started writing them down. I would listen to a show called Make Believe Ballroom and uh, they would play the top 25 hits off of the Billboard chart. And I wanted to go backwards and and go into the 40s and find out what was going on then. But that brought me to New York. That brought me to Billboard in the Palace Theater building. And uh, that was the center of the music business there. And I saw everything that was going on. You were just really pivotal 
in the punk movement in America. You signed the Ramones, one of the first punk rock bands. How were you tipped off about them? How did you know to go hear them? I had heard about them uh, from a number of people, but uh, I think mostly from from Danny Fields. And uh, I had wanted to go see them a couple of times, but I was in England. And I came back particularly to see them, and uh, I got sick when I was in England, and I couldn't go. So I sent my wife with Danny, and she came back raving. So the, the next evening, I bundled up, rented a, a rehearsal studio, and um, I rented it for an hour. But their set, they must have done, you know, about 18 songs in about 25 minutes. I may exaggerate a little bit, but they were just incredible. I was, it was like nothing else I had ever heard. I started talking to them immediately, and we came to an agreement, a deal, right then and there. And um, two days later, they were in the recording studio, and that was it. You know, one of the greatest signings uh, for me, and um, really a great thing for Sire Records. Do you have a favorite track from the Ramones among the records that you put out on Sire? I suppose, you know, what always comes to mind immediately is Blitzkrieg Bop. There, there's so many of their songs that I like, but Blitzkrieg Bop, I, I think, uh, is my favorite. So let's hear Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones on an album released by Sire Records, which is the label co-created by my guest Seymour Stein, who still has Sire Records. So that's the Ramones, one of the great bands signed by my guest, Seymour Stein of Sire Records. Um, so, you, you, uh, yeah, go ahead. Wait, one, one correction. I don't still have Sire Records. Um, about a month ago, I, I left and, um, oh. you know, yes, I left Sire and I left Warner Brothers and um, I'm now interested in pursuing new objectives. Um, so let's get back to the Ramones. It was very hard for you to get any kind of radio play for the Ramones because because why? And and we're talking at a time when there's like there's AM and there's FM. And FM is more album oriented then and AM is still like singles. So at the risk of asking the obvious, why was it so hard to get Ramon the Ramones some uh, airplay? I, I think they were kind of uh, misunderstood and uh, not fully appreciated. 
and that was in the United States. But uh, when we finally got them out of the United States and, you know, touring in England, they were a sensation. In fact, uh, the, the first gig that they did, a lot of English bands came to see them, the Sex Pistols and the Clash and others, and they were so enthralled with the Ramones that it made them convinced that they could make it too, and uh, it kind of turned the tide for them. They were also big in other parts of Europe, in South America, and um, it's a shame. They would be playing big theaters in England and then coming back to America and playing, you know, small clubs. It, it kind of broke my heart, and I'm sure it broke their hearts, too. So um, one of the things you tried to do to get your band's airplay was to tell your promotion people, don't use the word punk, use the word new wave. Why did you do that? And was it effective? Well, that really came about with the talking heads because they were describing them as punk and they were the furthest thing from punk. I said, look, New York used to be the absolute center of the music business, and that was maybe 20, 25 years before that. Uh, And then, of course, L.A. came into prominence, San Francisco, Detroit with Motown, um, and Philadelphia with with labels, you you know, like Cameo and Parkway and later Philadelphia International and uh, Memphis and Nashville was growing. And it all took away from the importance of New York. And then uh, I, I think that this music, which was predominantly coming from New York, but not exclusively, was like a new wave for New York. And that's what I called it. And it didn't sound bad like punk. So let's talk about Talking Heads. You heard them kind of accidentally the first time around. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to hear new songs by the Ramones at a club. Talking Heads was opening for them. Yeah. And that's how you heard them. It was a surprise opening. They weren't supposed to be the, the opening act. But I had heard about Talking Heads, but they were not spending that much time in New York. They were very early involved in, in video, and uh, they were working on that, and they were going back to Rhode Island, you know, which is where they went to school. And uh, so they they I missed a lot of their gigs. And Johnny wanted me to hear some new songs Johnny live. Johnny Ramone. Johnny Ramone, yes. And uh, so I came down. I investigated what the opening band was going to be, and they were a band called The Shirts, which I had seen and liked, but not liked enough to sign. And so I was waiting outside of CBGB's, and all of a sudden I hear this music, and I mean, it like sucked me into the room. That's how incredibly good it was. I was standing outside with Lenny Kay from the Patti Smith Band, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was so incredible. I said, this isn't the shirts. He said, no, no, they got another gig. He said, "Uh, this is Talking Heads, and boy, I was just blown away. So uh, I want to play a track from their first album that you released, Talking Heads 77, and this is Psycho Killer, which is such such a great track. Um, Fabulous. Okay, so let's hear Talking Heads, and this is Psycho Killer. (laughs) 
that was Talking Heads. Seymour Stein spoke to Terry Gross in 2018. He died last Sunday at age 80. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. Also, we'll hear from Joni Mitchell, who last month received the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, and film critic Justin Chang reviews Air, directed by Ben Affleck. I'm David B. Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This is Fresh Air. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado. On the most recent Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, we looked back at the art of drag through interviews from Fresh Air's archive. Atlanta was like Mecca for drag. It had the traditional drag queens who were female impersonators. But, you know, I come from the punk rock side of the tracks and we did drag as a social commentary. It was a re- reaction to the Reagan 80s. John wanted a very large um, woman because, as you had said before, he wanted the exact opposite of what normally would be beautiful. Uh, he wanted, to, as I've been called, inflated Jane Mansfield. <laughs> um, uh, so um, that's, that's what he got. As anti-drag legislation sprouts throughout American state legislatures, we thought it would be worthwhile to hear icons like RuPaul, Divine, and more talk about what drag has meant to them personally. You know, it's really funny. I feel like I should ask you for tips about how to walk in high heels. I've I never been you. able to wear heels. Really? It's so simple, <laughs> not, not that I'm dying to wear them or anything, but yeah, no, my feet ache simple. and I figure it's not worth it. So you want to give me some tips? Oh, I, I could run the decathlon in it. I, I, I could. You know, talk about drag racing. I mean, I could uh, really. I walk better in heels, I think, than, than in flats. If you're a Fresh Air Plus listener, you already get all of our episodes without sponsored messages. And now you get exclusive bonus episodes like this, too, every few weeks. Regular Fresh Air remains the same and free, but with Plus, you get even more of Fresh Air. You can sign up for Fresh Air Plus and support public media at plus.npr.org. Let's return to Terry's 2018 interview with Sire Records co-founder Seymour Stein, who died last Sunday at age 80. Among the many acts he discovered and signed include the Ramones, Ice-T, Talking Heads, and a certain ultimately very famous material girl. He was in the hospital when he signed her. Well, uh, let's go back a little before that. Mark Kamins was uh, someone that I thought had a lot of potential as a producer or a, a scout and everything. And the third or fourth artist he brought me was Madonna. And um, he brought the, the record to me while I was in the hospital 
this was, I was there about a week and a half when he came to see me, and he played me this one track, Everybody, by Madonna, and I was totally blown away. And so I, I said, uh, look, I'd like to see her. I'm going to be here for another almost three weeks. Try to bring her down here so I can meet her and we can, you know, do a deal. So he goes away and calls me up at 5 o'clock and says, Madonna and I are coming to see you at 8 o'clock. And here I was, you know, laying in this hospital uniform and a mess, you know, and uh, I probably hadn't taken a shower in a few days and all that because they had to take all the needles out of me. I freaked out. I had somebody come and shave me and cut my hair and look the best I could in two and a half hours before she got there. But when she came, when I, I saw her, I realized that the way she spoke, first of all, she's amazing, but she wanted a shot more than anything, and I wanted to give her that shot because I, I, I totally believed in her. So we spoke about a deal, and we agreed on, on a deal for, for recordings, and she walked out of there very happy, and I went to bed very happy that night, and that was great. And um, later I learned that um, she had been trying to get a deal for over two years, and people like Chris Blackwell, who was somebody that he, he I ran had the Island greatest, Records. Yeah, he owned Island Records and 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 ran it. Uh, had turned her down, and other people had turned her down. I couldn't believe it because to me it was a no-brainer, and um, it was um, a great day in my life. So, um, of the early tracks that you recorded with her, do you have a favorite? I think that the song I liked best and, and was really the song that became the one that launched her most was Borderline. I loved it. But I, I liked everything that she did. Well, why don't we hear Borderline? Seymour Stern, thank you so much for talking with us, and thank you for signing the bands that you signed. I appreciate it very much. That was Madonna. Seymour Stein spoke to Terry Gross in 2018. The co-founder of Sire Records died last Sunday at age 80. After a break, we listened to an archive interview with Joni Mitchell, who was recently honored by the Library of Congress for her songwriting. This is Fresh Air.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Since the late 1960s, Joni Mitchell has been one of the most influential singer-songwriters in popular music. Her songs include The Circle Game, Both Sides Now, Carrie, Help Me, Free Man in Paris, and Big Yellow Taxi, to name just a few. Last month, she received the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, and was honored and performed at a concert televised on PBS last week. We're going to listen to an excerpt of Terry's interview with her from 2004. At the time, Mitchell had put together two compilations of her work, Dreamland and The Beginning of Survival. They began with her song, The Magdalene Laundries. These are the laundries run by strict nuns to which young Irish women were sent where they became virtual prisoners. They were sent because they were unwed and pregnant, had been raped, or were considered too flirtatious. Terry asked Joni Mitchell how she wrote that song. The the thing that sparked the song was my I have a, a, a property in Canada by the ocean, and I have a caretaker there who who is a, a Dane, and, and uh, he said to me one day, you know, Joni, he said, you're a basically cheerful person, but you write these melancholy songs. I think it's because you stay up late at night. You should write something during the day. So I went out on the point, and I came up with that music for the Magdalene Laundries, which sounds very much like the spot that it was created in, and water and birds and so on. Then I went in to get some groceries, and I bought a newspaper. I came back, and on the front page of the newspaper, there was an article about... Um, the sisters in a in a Magdalene Laundries in Dublin selling off an acreage to realtors, and while they were grading to build something on it, they unearthed over a hundred unmarked graves, m- women's graves marked Magdalene of the Tears, Magdalene of the Sorrows. So they had gone Catholic girls too, unconsecrated into the ground without even their names on them. So then it, I, I, well, I wrote the song with a lot of empathy and and. Um, to a degree, imagination from just a little bit that was mentioned about them in this newspaper article. Well, let's hear this song, The Magdalene Laundries, uh, written by, written and performed by Joni Mitchell and featured on her new compilation, The Beginning of Survival. I was an unmarried girl I just turned 27 When they sent me to the sisters For the way men looked at me Thank you. 
Joni Mitchell recorded in 1994, and that song is featured on her new compilation, The Beginning of Survival. Now, my understanding is that you're not writing or performing now, that you're on a no. hiatus from writing and performing. Do, do you miss it? I mean, like, are you are you singing at home even though you're not performing on stage? No, I can think of nothing to raise my voice in song to at this particular time. I don't want to write social criticism. Uh, I don't want to write angry songs. Um, I'm waiting for something to happen, I guess, within me. Um, I've said, and I think there's an element of truth, or maybe it's very true, that that I wrote songs from the time that I lost my daughter until the time she came back. And since my family has returned to me, I don't write anymore. It seemed like I mothered the world until I, I got my own family to, you know, mother or befriend. <laughs> Could we explain what you mean by that? When in 1964, you were pregnant out of wedlock, and um, and and you, uh, I guess this would have been a big scandal at the time. Yes, it, it was in uh, 1965. I I gave birth to uh, a, a girl. The, the the traditional way of dealing with it in those days was the child would be taken away, and you didn't you didn't see her, and and that made it and and placed. Um, up for adoption. But in 1965, uh, in in the city of Toronto, girls came from just about every city in Canada to give birth to these children in the anonymity of the city. You know, it was the year before the pill was available, but the movies had gotten very sexy. So there there was a moral shift, you know, that was taking place. And Toronto, uh, there there were more babies then there were adoptive parents available at that time. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about how you think your voice has changed in the years that you've performed. Um, you used to sing a lot in a high kind of falsetto voice, and then your voice really deepened. Part of that was age. Probably part of that was cigarettes. You know, one of the songs on um, on the new CD, Dreamland, is a, a fairly recent version. I think it's from 2000. Of um, of both sides now, so I thought it would be interesting to hear that orchestral version from two thousand. You have a full orchestra behind you, back to back with the original version, and and hear not only how your voice changed, but also how you interpret the song differently. It's I think um, it's a, a darker song, it's a slower song, and but here's when, the other when you thing. sing it later, and you've also changed some of the melody around. You're, you're kind of almost like improvising within the melody in the two thousand version. But here's the other thing. It's like I have a, you know, Wayne Shorter comes in and plays with me. He's got, he's got a tenor and he's got an alto horn. Uh-huh. And depending on the piece of music, he uses the tenor or he uses the alto horn. So, I mean, a lot of the very high end is gone. It's just gone. That, that happens with opera singers that don't smoke over 50. Opera singers sometimes retire. But I do have this rich alto voice, which is, is unharmed. You know, I'll never be able to trade guitar licks. You, you know, to to mimic a guitar again, that's uh, way up in the stratosphere like that. But still, you know, um, I mean, a lot of people didn't, didn't like that little squeaky girl on helium anyway. I mean, it does sound very, 
uh, it's very suitable for ingenue roles, but I think that the alto horn, if I may use that terminology, mm-hmm. you, you know, brings a different perspective to some of these songs that I frankly like better, and so do many other people. Well, wh- why don't we hear these two versions of both sides now back to back? Just because I think it's it's really interesting to compare what you do with the song uh, both times. So, so why don't we give that a listen? Okay. of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that weave but now they only block the sun Of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and they snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds From both sides now From up and down Still somehow It's cloud illusions I recall I really don't know clouds At all That's Joni Mitchell. We heard the original version of Both Sides Now and the 2000 version, which is included on her new anthology, Dreamland. It always struck me that Both Sides Now is the kind of song about, you know, growing older and wiser and therefore seeing things a little differently. Um, and, of course, you wrote the song when you were really pretty darn young. <laughs> and the 2000 well, version yeah. of it is when you really are older and wiser. And you're looking and you're you're singing that song that you wrote, you know, years ago when you were so much younger. And I was wondering if the song meant something different to you when you recorded it in 2000 than when you first recorded it. Well, um... I wrote the song when I was 21, um, and, and I didn't feel that it was a, a, a successful version. I, I was 
the interesting thing was that the the astrological influence, the main thrust on my daughter was that she has to come to grips with fantasy and reality. It just has to do with the time that she was born. And the early work that I did right after her birth was um, almost like I was raising her because, because the meditations that I was doing at 21 were on fantasy and reality, which is my daughter's thing to learn here in this life. Um, that whole song was a meditation on fantasy and reality. It begins with each verse has a very naive beginning verse, and then uh, the second half of the verse is coming to grips with reality. So, so, but but it took a long time. I, theatrically speaking, it was, you know, in it was just odd. I think to be singing that song when I was so young, and the meditation was so big, it seemed like I hardly scratched the surface of it. So I never felt it was really successful. Joni Mitchell speaking with Terry Gross in 2004. Last month, she received the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. She was honored in a concert special televised last week on PBS. In June, Joni Mitchell will perform at the Gorge Amphitheater in Washington State with Brandy Carlisle. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews Air, the new movie about the campaign by Nike to sign Michael Jordan. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. The new movie Air tells the behind-the-scenes story of how, in 1984, Nike signed a landmark deal with Michael Jordan. The collaboration led to the hugely successful Air Jordan sneaker line. Air is the latest from director Ben Affleck, who appears in the film alongside Matt Damon, Jason Bateman, Chris Tucker, and Viola Davis. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. 1980s nostalgia has never been stronger. To judge by two new Hollywood movies about landmark 80s business deals that had a huge cultural and commercial impact. Tetris, now streaming on Apple TV+, is an amusing but lumbering Cold War thriller about how Nintendo secured the rights to the hugely addictive Soviet-invented video game. 
by far the better of the two, is Ben Affleck's terrifically enjoyable new movie, Air. It's an over-the-top love letter to the 80s, kicking off with a montage of the decade's most popular trends and celebrities, from Princess Diana to Cabbage Patch Kids, and cramming its soundtrack with hit artists from Violent Femmes to Cyndi Lauper. It's also an underdog movie in which the underdog is Nike itself, an Oregon-based sneaker company that, in 1984, is known more for its running shoes than for its basketball shoes. Alex Convery's blisteringly funny script offers a blow-by-blow dramatization of how Nike managed to outmaneuver powerhouse rivals like Converse and Adidas and sign an NBA rookie named Michael Jordan. Their legendary deal would forever change not only Jordan and Nike's fortunes, but also the entire landscape of celebrity endorsements and professional sports. The story centers on Nike's in-house basketball expert, Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon with a paunch and a lot of polo shirts, and presented here as the mastermind behind the deal. Sonny knows more about the game than anyone at the company, but he also has a gambler's impulsiveness that doesn't always pay off. And so when Sonny proposes that Nike go big and offer all of its annual $250,000 basketball budget to Jordan, rather than dividing it among three or four players, his colleagues are skeptical, especially since Jordan is a known Adidas fan. Sonny eventually manages to sway top marketing executive Rob Strasser, played by a very good Jason Bateman. But he has a tougher time convincing Nike's CEO, Phil Knight, played by Affleck himself. I'm willing to bet my career on Michael Jordan. Come on, man. You ask me what I do here, this is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. It took I mean, that's why we're all here. Don't change that now. I mean, if you look at him, if you really look at Jordan, like I did, you're going to see exactly what I see. Which is what? The most competitive guy I have ever seen. He is a killer. When Jordan's agent, a hilariously foul-mouthed Chris Messina, refuses to so much as grant Nike a meeting, the hard-headed Sonny finds another way. He decides to drop in on Jordan's parents, specifically to talk to his mom, Dolores, known to be the guiding hand behind her son's decisions. And so Sonny heads out to the suburbs of Wilmington, North Carolina, and spends a few minutes with Dolores, played by an unsurprisingly superb Viola Davis. She listens as Sonny explains in persuasive detail why Jordan will be just another athlete at Adidas or Converse, whereas Nike will treat him like the superstar he is. What should I ask you? Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son. I believe he's different. And I believe you might be the only person on earth who knows it. That's why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. All right, Mr. Picaro, thank you for coming. Sonny's risky move pays off. Once the Jordans agree to take a formal meeting with Nike, Air clicks into place as a kind of comic heist thriller in which Sonny and his colleagues all do their part to help close the deal. That gives the movie some resemblance to Affleck's Oscar-winning Argo, which also turned a moment in history into breezy yet gripping entertainment. 
But Eyre is also heavily indebted to the walking and talking workplace dramedies of Aaron Sorkin, full of whip-smart cynicism and earnest speechifying. At one point, Sonny gives a genuinely stirring monologue about the singularity of Michael Jordan's greatness, the kind that leaves even other greats in the dust. He's getting at something here about what it means to leave a lasting legacy, and how hard it is for even talented people to pull off. There's a moving subtext to the scenes between Affleck and Damon, two aging Hollywood golden boys who seem to be contemplating their mortality even as their characters do the same. Even more poignant is the casting of two comedians who rose to fame in the 90s, but who haven't been as prominent in the movies since. Marlon Wayans plays the Olympic basketball coach George Raveling, and Chris Tucker plays the Nike executive Howard White. Raveling proves instrumental in making the Nike-Jordan deal happen. So, in his way, does White, as one of the few black men we see in Nike's upper ranks. Air touches on a lot of ideas, though I do wish it dived deeper into some of them, especially when it comes to questions of race, culture, and exploitation in the sports and shoe industries. At one point, Bateman's character briefly references Nike's use of sweatshop labor in Asia, though the point is quickly glossed over. And late in the game, Dolores Jordan makes the case for why Michael deserves not just a flat fee, but a percentage of the Air Jordan revenues, arguing for athletes and their families to get the compensation they deserve. Her speech makes for one of the movie's most rousing moments, and it's almost enough to make you forget that you've been watching a feature-length Nike commercial, one that's far more entertaining than it has any right to be. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new movie Air, directed by Ben Affleck. On Monday's show, Grammy, Tony, and Emmy-nominated singer and actor Josh Groban. He's playing Sweeney Todd in a new Broadway revival of the Stephen Sondheim musical about a barber out for revenge. Josh Groban has sold millions of records since he first started performing as a singer when he was 17 years old. I hope you can join us. Speak to me, friend. Whisper. I'll listen. I know. I know. You've been locked out of sight all these years. Like me, my friend. Well, I've come home. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shurock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? 
With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.